0: I want to welcome everybody, if you're here with us, if you're joining us online, thank you so much uh, for being here today to worship together. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 15, we're going to talk about the parable of the lost sheep, all right? So as you turn there or find your spot on your phone, I want to ask you guys a question, something for us all to, to engage in, respond in. How many of you at any point in time ever in your life have lost something? Raise your hand. All right, put your hands down. Everybody, right? Now, how many of you is it in your nature to quite often lose things? Raise your hand. That's me, right? Me and like all the kids. Thank y'all for that. Yeah, that's great. So I struggle. I lose stuff all the time. I forget where I set things down. There are three things in my life that I commonly lose, and i Probably most of you who struggle with losing things lose these three things as well. I lose my keys, I lose my wallet, and I lose my cell phone. I've always been this way. I've always been absent-minded when it comes to setting things down, or maybe even a better uh, uh, explaining myself is I don't put things back where they're supposed to go to begin with, okay? And so when Aaron and I got married, it was not uncommon for me to have to go somewhere and spend 20 minutes in a mad dash trying to locate in our little townhome that we had at the time where my wallet was. So for the entirety of our marriage, my wife and her graciousness has been working on a system for me so I don't lose things as often. So if you walk into our kitchen, there's a little place with some hooks and that's where I'm supposed to hang my keys. When you go upstairs in my bedroom, on my bedside table, there's a little uh, like wooden bowl that her dad made for me that that's where my wallet goes. And then beside that is the charger for my cell phone. So that in, if I do everything the way that I'm supposed to do it, I hang my keys up where they're supposed to go, I set my wallet where it's supposed to go, and set my phone where it's supposed to go. But guess what? I don't always do that, right? I still lose things, even though there's the exact location of where it's supposed to go. Now, here's what I do quite often, all right? I, when I realize my keys are lost, I try to play it off in my house like I haven't lost anything. So like open confession time this morning, I couldn't find my wallet. All right. And so I've just kind of, I would gone downstairs. I was kind of moseying around. It's not where it's supposed to be. And just like, like, I'm just prayer walking the house, right? Just, I'm not looking for anything. I'm just walking around. I'm prone to lose things. How many of you have ever lost something when you found it? Got really excited. All right. So when I was a, a youth pastor still at, at our previous church, every youth pastor longs for the day where the senior pastor entrusts them with, with adult stuff, right? And so I was at that point in my career, uh, the senior pastors of the churches I'd served at had yet to entrust me with something like that. And, and I get a, a call from our senior pastor and he said, hey, can you come up to my office? I would like to talk to you because my office was on the other side of our campus. And I said, "Yes, yeah, sure. So I come into his office and he said, I'd like for you to lead a mission trip in about five or six months. I mean, that's fantastic. I've, I've led mission trips before. I said, well, give me some of the details. What's this going to be? And he says, well, we're sending a group of adults to Bolivia to work at a church uh, where, where there's a lot of families with, with, with kids with, with autism. And in the whole country of Bolivia, there were two uh, professionally trained uh, professionals that work with kids of autism. And at our church at that time, we had eight professionally trained individuals. He said, so there's a church there, they're, they're really reaching families with, with kids with autism, and so we're going to go and, and send these adults, and, and all I need you to do, you don't have to teach, you don't have to do anything. I just need you to go with them so that you can get them there and you can get them back. No problem I've done stuff like that before so we have our meetings we get everything lined up me and, a, and this and this team of, of men and women are going to head down to Bolivia to, to have this mission trip and so the night before I begin to pack I've got all my clothes I've got everything lined up I've got my wallet <laughs> I've got my phone I've got everything that I need it's time to now go grab my passport and so I go and my passport's not here go, the other place where my passport's supposed to be, it's not there either. For the next five hours, I turn our house upside down desperately because I need to find this passport. Because I'm afraid that my getting them there and getting them back is making sure that I drop them off at the airport, and I don't want to go to my senior pastor and say, guess what, your boy lost his passport. And then underneath a bunch of files in a file cabinet Several hours later, I find my passport and the excitement that came from me was just something I'd never experienced before because now I'm not going to get yelled at. I'm not going to let anybody down. I've succeeded. I've found this passport. And all of you can relate to a similar circumstance, whether if it's something small, like you, like you can't find your keys and so it causes you to be five minutes late for work or whether it's that important document that you need for for a closing on a house or something like that where where panic begins to set in, we've all lost something, and we've all experienced excitement when we find it. So Jesus is going to tell a parable, and the parable that he's going to share has profound theological implications of understanding the gospel and what Jesus came to do. But in that moment, as he shared it, everyone in the room just like everyone here can relate to it. And so let's look at Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so Jesus tells a story about something being lost, and then it's found. He tells a story that everyone could relate to. He tells a story that that shows desperation and excitement. He shares a story that brings forth from it celebration. Let's understand why Jesus is telling this story. And in order to, in the very beginning of the setting of what we find, we see the dynamic of the relationship between Jesus and sinners. You see, there's two types of people in the room. There's two types of people in the audience when Jesus tells this parable. The, the first group or the first types are the, are the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's important, there's, there's different things that we can talk about them. But it's important for us to know that they saw themselves as both religious and good. And who they are, they would have seen themselves as very religious. Very, ones being will to uphold the law. Good in all they do. They would have seen themselves that their view of others and their sin was accurate and was justified. And at the very heart of their being, they would have thought that everything they've done from their actions to their thoughts to their words would be pleasing to God. It's important for us to know that this group of individuals thought that in and of themselves, as God looked down on them, he was perfectly pleased with who they are and of what they had done. But also in the room is a different set of people, tax collectors and sinners, some of the lowest of the low for the day. The tax collectors, a a group of people who have betrayed their own ethnic group, betrayed their own countrymen, betrayed their own men and women of their faith in order that Rome could keep them enslaved but also in the room are the sinners. Now, there's not one sin that is, that is designated for these, this group of sinners, but in this group of people would have been people who were deemed by everyone, culturally accepted, to look at this group of people and said that they're dirty. They had been people that had had questionable past and more than likely questionable current situations as well. And this is the group of people of where we find Jesus. I think it's very important for for you and I to to know and to understand the dynamic of the heaviness of what's going on in the room. There couldn't have been two groups of people that would have viewed themselves in in more different circumstances. But it's important for us to know this. Jesus is with both of them. And at this time, both are with Jesus. For whatever reason, both groups have sought him out. And we can speculate on the why, but scripture doesn't tell us. But both of them have heard, and there's a part of them, whether it's sinful or not sinful, that has sought to be with Jesus in this moment. But I think even more important than that, Jesus hasn't put a bodyguard at the door and said, stay away. That in this moment, Jesus has welcomed them in, both the sinful religious and just the sinful sinners. Jesus has welcomed both of them in. And Scripture's very clear. It tells us that Jesus is doing two things with them. When it it tells that Jesus is there with the the tax collectors and sinners, it means that this, when it says that he received them, what that means is, and lack of a better term in a way that we can all understand it in the words that I use in everyday life, Jesus was just hanging out with them. Jesus was just spending time with them. Whether he knew them before this interaction or not, Jesus was willing to be in a social setting with questionable people. Jesus was willing to push everything else to the side for the willingness and, and, and the moment to engage with a group of people who were considered questionable by everyone else. But not only is he doing that, but he's he's eating with them. He's eating with them. So here's what this means: when 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 we see in scripture, and that's a big thing that comes from the life of Jesus, that Jesus would eat with sinners. So in, in, in Jesus's day, and, and we know this, but it helps us uh, get things culturally. So so picture this: you've been introduced to someone now, right? Like like you meet him at work, you you meet him at church, and so you want to get to know them more, and so you engage into a conversation to get to know them, and you take slow steps. It may be that you have conversations on. Facebook, or you have conversations through text message or you meet up at Starbucks to grab a coffee. Well, Jesus doesn't have these means, right? And so for Jesus to get to know someone for culturally during this time for them to d- decide that they're going to invest into a relationship, they would share a meal together. And the beautiful picture, I think, of what God has set in the heart of humanity, regardless of what culture you go to or what time you find yourself in, if you really want to get to know someone, if you really want to invest in the life of someone, don't meet at a restaurant, meet at your home. Don't sit in the living room, but come to your table. And that's what we find in the dynamic of Jesus with this group of sinners, that there's a depth of engagement of lostness for Jesus. The only one who's holy in the room, the only one who has a proper standing in his perfection, with what we see is he welcomed both, he hung out, and he begins to invest in a depth of of, of, personality. getting to know them in a personal way. So uh, the question for us, even before we look at the parable, is for you and I, for those of us who gather in a church, whether we see ourselves as quote-unquote religious or true followers of Christ, are you and I engaging with lostness in the depth of which Jesus is? Are we taking the time to invest in, to build over, to bridge the gap between us? Now, Here's what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that we we hand over our social security numbers to people. I'm not saying that we allow people who are making different decisions to to raise our kids on our behalf or even seek out their advice for marriage or finances. But I am saying that if you and I are going to invest in lostness in the depth and in the way that Jesus does, that we have to evaluate and look at our life and compare it to the life of Christ as he models for us. So I got three questions I want to ask you really quick for you and your life with where you are right now and the journey that you're on. Number one, do you know lost people? Do you know lost people? Now, not people who, who go to church or don't go to church. Do you know lost people? Now let's dig a little bit deeper within that. Are you in relationship with lost people, right? Are you willing to have lunch with them? Do you know their name? Do you know about their kids, about their family, about the battles and struggles of life that they're going through? Do you know lost people? And then the third question that I would ask you, if you say yes to both of those, is this. If I were to ask them about you, would they say that you care about them? Would they say that there's a depth of love that is shown from you to them, that if a crisis hits their life, that they're calling you because they know that you love them and that you care for them? And it's what we see with Jesus. That's why they journey to him. That's why Jesus is such a magnet to lost people. They don't know the story, but yet they come to him anyways because of his depth of caring. And here's why this is so important in this moment for Jesus. As he's got cultures on either side of him, we see Jesus attack the culture conflict You see, for there to be reconciliation, for there to be unity, Jesus has to break down both sides of the argument, both sides of the line that has been drawn. And so how does Jesus do that? He welcomes them both. He doesn't alienate one in the story. Instead, he begins to speak to the heart of lostness and what he's there to do. The parable of the lost sheep is the parable for the lost. It's the parable that everyone in the room except Jesus needs. So he shares this with the Pharisee, he shares it with the scribe, he shares it with the tax collector. Jesus shares it with the sinner. And Jesus begins to describe a situation that, just like you, as I shared the silly story of my passport, Jesus begins to share a story that everybody in the room would have understood. Everybody in the room would have heard about. Everybody in the room would have gone through. That there's a shepherd. And the shepherd's responsibility is this flock of sheep A hundred sheep that this shepherd has been entrusted with, that his livelihood comes from this, that his identity is found in this, his job and what he's supposed to do is to care for him. But there's this one sheep, and it wanders off. It leaves from where it's supposed to be. It leaves from what it knows. It leaves from the care and the comfort and the love of the flock. It leaves from where it's been raised, and it wanders off by itself. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 in order to go find it. I want to talk about the 99 really quickly and the understanding of the shepherd. I've heard this talked about before, that that the shepherd is more concerned with the one than the 99. That's not true. There's not more love for one than there is for the other. You see, because what would have happened in this moment is that the shepherd is equally caring for both as he searches out for the one. The scripture is clear that it says that the shepherd left the flock in open And so what would happen is, is this, whenever a sheep would wander away, which was common, the shepherd would move the flock at nighttime to the middle of the field, away from the woods, away from the river, and in doing so would move it away from the darkness where predators could hide would move them to the dead center of the field and then would build a fire around where the, where they were so that if a predator were to think that they're going to go out, that they would associate fire with people and not get anywhere near. So do you see what is happening, what the shepherd does when Jesus says that he left the flock in open field? Jesus is saying, I'm still caring about the flock. In the pursuit of this, it's for the good of the flock. I haven't forgotten about the flock in the pursuit of the one but he goes out having cared for the flock and he finds the one and when he finds it scripture tells us he 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 doesn't grab it by the neck and drag it back he doesn't wrap a a a rope around to to use as a leash to guide it back to where it's supposed to be he doesn't go up and, and kick it and push it and do any of those things the shepherd reaches down and picks up the sheep And puts the sheep on his shoulders so that he can get it back where it needed to be. The sheep who got itself lost. The sheep who put itself in that situation. The sheep who couldn't come back on his own. You see, one of the characteristics of sheep, when they get lost, a lot like us sometimes, they get afraid. And when they get afraid... They get anxiety, and when anxiety begins to build up in a sheep, the sheep just lays down and won't move, and so what does the shepherd do? He reaches down into the situation where it's gotten itself, and he says, no, it's not about you coming back to me. It's not about you coming to find me, but it's it's about the holy hands of God reaching down and picking up that which is lost. And then you can't even get yourself back. So I'm going to carry you in the weight of your burden back to the flock. Back to where you're supposed to be. This is where the family is. And then Jesus says that as the shepherd returns, he tells his neighbors, he tells his friends, and the rejoicing that takes place because of the one Because of the one. Church, this is what salvation looks like. This is what God is doing. This is what he is in the pursuit, in his pursuit of us as we've wandered away, as we've left what we know, as we left what has been set in our hearts for something more, that God is in the pursuit of us. And Jesus says that this pursuit, that it is begins and is found in him, And it's a call on our part to repentance. In verse seven, I'm gonna reread that to you. Jesus, his words, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who repents, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus looks and says, it's not about getting it right. Getting it right doesn't bring the praise. It's not about learning how to manage your sin. It's not about figuring out how to clean yourself up. It's not about all of the works that you can do. He says, if you want to hear the celebration of angels, if you want to know the celebration of God, if God's people want to know what to celebrate, it's not about a group of people sitting in a room thinking that they've got it all figured out. It's about when one who's broken says, I need you. It's the heart of repentance. It's the beginning of faith. It's the cry of the sinner. It's what we desperately need. So that begins with us, our brokenness, that you and I regardless of how many church services, how many mission trips, how many offerings we've given, how many works we've done, how many people we've shared the gospel with, that you and I recognize that at the core of what establishes the foundation of the relationship in our life is for you and I to recognize we are sinners who desperately, desperately need him. And then what we can experience is the love of the Shepherd. I want to read this quote to you I found from a a pastor, John Piper, talking about this scripture. He said this, in spite of his majesty, holiness, and universal power and greatness, he astonishingly cares for individual human beings one at a time. It blows my mind to think about this. Of all that God sees, of all that God knows, of all that God is doing, God in this very moment— is not ignorant or unaware of you. Think about that. Of all that is going on with the world, as he upholds the universe and galaxies, as he manages governments and continues on in the movement of the church, God thinks of, knows of, sees, hears you at this very moment. And that cannot be taken away. There is 100 sheep, One wanders away, and the shepherd immediately notices. The moment never gets too big for God. That God in his fullness sees all, knows all, pursues all, and it's what we understand in the love of the shepherd. And then we see what God's desiring. We see what he longs for, the whole Family worship. The shepherd comes back. The shepherd comes with the sheep on his shoulders. And now the party begins. Now the celebration happens because of what the shepherd has done. We're not celebrating the fact that a sheep got lost. But we're celebrating the fact that the shepherd found the sheep. Jesus' talks, speaks in John 4, verse 23. He's talking about faith. He's talking about worship that will please God, the worship that God longs for. He says this, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The heart of what we are to be. The heart of what he is calling us to. What does true worship look like? It looks like this. People, as God seeks them, who are worshiping him in the spirit and truth of understanding of what he's done for them. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you this morning with a beautiful picture of what you've painted for us today. One sheep. One sheep, it matters enough to the shepherd for him to go not to leave the sheep in its own circumstances, to find its way back, but for the love and the pursuit of the shepherd. God, I thank you so much that for so many of us in this room, watching online, it's the love that we've experienced when we were desperate and we were lost in our sins and our trespasses. But you and your faithfulness, you and your righteousness, you and your holiness pursued the heart's sinful people. With every head bowed and every eye closed, for those of us who have experienced this love, Put yourself in that room for a moment. What is your heart for lostness? What does it look like? Is it invested into a relationship? Is it invested into care? Is it invested in love? To lead them to their savior who desperately seeks them. But I wanna ask you another question. How desperate are you for Jesus? I'm not talking about that you've done religious things. I'm talking about a level of, of brokenness in your heart true repentance before him of not a 10 step plan about how to fix yourself or or figure this out But, but a genuine desperate cry for brokenness because of the sin that's in your life whether you're the Pharisee or the sinner the scribe or the tax collector a desperate cry of repentance before him. God, I pray this morning for the hearts of the individuals who are gathered here with us, who are online, for the hearts of our neighbors, of our friends, of our family, of our loved ones. Lord, I pray that you would bring them back to you Lord, that they would respond to your kindness and love with brokenness and repentance, and that in that moment is where the celebration begins. In that moment is where life happens. In that moment is where people move from dark to life. In that moment is where people move from from death to eternal joy with you. Be willing to be broken. May we be willing to be vulnerable. In your name we pray. Amen. In just a moment we're going to stand. We're going to respond in worship. We just talked about the heart of worship that God longs for. A heart that's desperate for repentance, that's desperate for lostness. A heart that worships and sings and responds, not out of comfort or ability to sing, but because of a redeemed life before Him. If you've been saved, whether you're sitting on your couch at home or you're gathered in here, worship Him like it matters. Worship Him because you were dead and He brought you back to life. Worship Him because you were lost and you were found. Worship Him because you and I were like one of those sheep and we wandered off and He loved us too much to leave us out there, so He went and He brought us back in. Then there's something else. You're here in the auditorium with us today. I'm gonna be back out in the hallway, all right? And if you wanna come talk to somebody about repentance, don't talk about how to fix everything. If you just want to get to the to the heart of it of a salvation conversation about Jesus Christ, it begins with repentance. We're not going to talk about how to fix all the problems, but we're going to talk about brokenness. We're going to pray and cry out to God for that. I want to encourage you to come talk to me. If you're at home and you're, you're watching this right now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get, get online, send us an email, like send us the text message that the Pastor Dave has put through for us. We want to have a conversation with you. We don't want the moment of the delay of, of you being at home and the internet to stop this. Because salvation and eternity hangs in this. And God desperately, desperately loves you.